0: This is the third talk in a series of talks on the seven stages of the spiritual path, titled, Stage 3, Unification of Self, recorded May 11, 1997, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. This morning, I'm going to be talking about the third stage in a series of talks on the seven stages of the spiritual path. And this one's the unification of self, which is in some ways one of the most mysterious of the stages. Uh, So far we've talked about the first stage, the awakening of faith. Faith that there is some sort of transcendent dimension to life that holds out this promise of an ultimate or true happiness. And this leads to an investigation of teachings. Uh, People start trying to find a path uh, that will lead them to this happiness, this uh, reveal, this ultimate dimension to them. And this investigation of teachings usually culminates in uh, finding a teacher, or teachings, or a set of practices. If you're entering an established tradition like Buddhism, you'd be taking uh, vows of refuge. If you were in India and uh, taking on a guru, you'd probably have a formal initiation ceremony and so forth. But we mentioned that there are three things that uh, operate in each of these stages. Uh, Exhaustion, crisis, and guidance. In the first stage, the awakening of faith, you come to this through an exhaustion or a crisis in your worldly pursuits. They no longer do it for you anymore. Or maybe some crisis where you're facing a life-threatening situation and you realize the shortness of life, the impermanence of life, and you start asking, is there anything more? And then uh, in that state of questioning you're open to guidance and you'll get some sort of little guidance or some sort of big guidance, some glimpse of this other dimension or maybe just a friend handing you a book or something. But something gets you looking. And then you enter the next stage, investigation of teachings, and in the beginning you think that the ego mind is going to figure all this out. And so you read uh, a lot of books and you go to a lot of teachers uh, and listen to them and you're trying to understand them purely from an intellectual level usually. And at some point along the line that gets exhausted and you begin to realize this is a much bigger mystery than you originally imagined and so you start looking for a teacher uh, or teachings and practices. So these three principles are operating in each of these stages and each stage ends in some sort of crisis and then there's a kind of grace. The grace of finding a teacher, for instance, at the end of the investigation stage. And I said last time, this is like, you can imagine this as a wheel with spokes leading to the center, and each spoke representing different sorts of paths, different traditions, and in the beginning, while you're investigating teachings, you're roaming around the circumference of the wheel, stopping here, trying a little of this, a little of that, and so forth, but once you've exhausted that effort, you find the tradition, the path, the set of practices that is right for you, and then you start moving inward along one of these spokes, So this is really the beginning of your commitment to a spiritual path. But as I said last time, when you first make this commitment, most seekers really have no idea what it's ultimately going to involve. And this is probably a good thing, too. And in this next stage, the unification of self, is really when you begin to discover what this commitment entails. And in fact, it's in wrestling with this commitment that you arrive at this unification of self. So commitment is the principle that really comes to the fore in this stage of the path. So then we can ask why should a unification of self be necessary in the first place? What does that mean? And to understand this we have to understand at least a little of the psychological dynamics of a mystical path. And there are three very basic things. First of all, we have to understand where the path leads. The path leads to gnosis, to enlightenment, to realization, to union. So that's the equivalent in a, uh, in a spiritual psychology of health, mental health, spiritual health, ultimate spiritual health. And then the biggest obstacle to that is this experience of I, the sense of a separate self. In psychological terms, that would be ego, or as sometimes it's called, the old self. So this old self, then, is the obstacle that has to be overcome, transcended, gotten through, or whatever, in order to attain gnosis. And ultimately, this old self has to die. This is why the author of The Cloud of Unknowing wrote, You must realize and experience for yourself, that unless you lose self, you will never reach your goal. For whoever you are, in whatever you do... Or however you try, that elemental sense of your own blind being will remain between you and your God. Beautifully put, praise succinct. This is why the Buddha said cut off the ego with your own hand as you would an autumn lily. And the reason is given by Ananda Moyamai, great uh, contemporary Hindu mystic. So long as the sense of me and mine remains, there is bound to be sorrow and want in the life of the individual. So this is where this path is leading. Now, in the beginning, and especially in these first three or four stages, the seeker usually either does not know this, or does not really believe it, or does not really fully comprehend what this is going to entail. When I was down in LA uh, in the uh, late 70s and early 80s, I met a lot of people who were working on dissolving their egos. It's like the ego was uh, a wart on their nose or something, and they were working on dissolving it. And they really didn't realize that it's the one who is working on dissolving the ego that has to go. But curiously, in a certain sense, the ego or the old self does understand, it does comprehend and it is terrified. And so it devises all these strategies to avoid uh, this path going where it's destined to go if it's carried to completion. And one of the first lines of defense is to put up resistance, just pure resistance. Later it will try other things, like they'll try to co-opt insights and experiences you have on the path and so forth. But in the beginning, the first thing most seekers have to face is just resistance. And this resistance can set up a tremendous inner conflict. So the psyche becomes divided. There's the old self that doesn't want to do this, but then there's this beginning of this uh, new self that does want to pursue the path. So in this... Division then calls for a unification. So what are the forms that this resistance can take? Well, first of all, when you uh, commit to a path, to a set of practices and so forth, in addition to doing the kind of inquiry that you started just through investigating teachings, uh, you usually then start doing some sort of meditation or contemplative practice, uh, which requires little discipline. And you also need to make some time to do spiritual reading, to attend teachings. And you need unstructured time, which is a kind of a paradox. You need the discipline to allow yourself unstructured time. It's very, very important to have time to be alone with yourself, to have time to just ponder your life, to take stock of things. To let your mind wander, not wander off into fantasy, but uh, wander around what you're about, what you're doing, to really start exploring yourself. In the very beginning, the old self usually gets kind of excited by this. It's a, a novelty. The ego loves novelty. Anything is new, exciting, the ego jumps on board. But quite quickly, for most people, uh, the ego starts to get bored and starts to rebel, And you can hear this in your own mind. You know the the old self starts making up excuses for why you shouldn't be practicing. So you get up in the morning and you say, "I got too many things to do today. I have to skip meditation today." You know, or you come home at night, "Oh, you're too tired tonight. You know, you can't you can't read tonight." This, uh, or you've worked so hard, you deserve to watch some TV tonight. You know, just blow it off. And this will go back and forth. It's perfectly natural. But if you give in too much to these rationalizations that the ego cooks up for not doing the practice, the practice will start to slip away. Theophane, the recluse, great Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox Christian mystics, talks about this in terms of lukewarmness, how lukewarmness enters the practice and the dangers of this. And he says, it begins with forgetfulness. God's gifts are forgotten, and so is God himself. And the danger of being without God And the remembrance of death disappears. This is due to the enemy, which is in the Christian terms the devil, but we can always read this as the ego. This is exactly the ego's voice in your mind. Or to the dispersion of thoughts by business cares and excessive social contacts. When all is forgotten, the heart grows cool and its sensitivity to spiritual things is interrupted. And so we fall into a state of indifference and then into negligence and carelessness. As a result, spiritual occupations are postponed for a time and afterwards abandoned completely. And then we begin again our old way of life, careless and negligent, forgetful of God, seeking only our own pleasure. Even if there is nothing disorderly in it, do not look for anything divine. It will be an empty life. Does anybody have this experience? This, you know, happening? Sometimes people do go through a whole period of uh, sort of drifting away and then come back, you know. His, his warning at the end, though, is very uh, appropriate. And he's not saying that necessarily a worldly life is evil. This is not, there may be nothing disorderly in it. It may be a very comfortable life. But at the end of your life, if you haven't done any spiritual practice, chances are you're going to find it was an empty life. There was something missing, some task that was left undone. In any case, uh, Jesus put this very strongly when he said you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and mammon. Mammon is a mysterious uh, Aramaic word. probably means gain or profit. That's what modern scholars think. This doesn't mean you have to become an external renunciate, that you have to drop everything, go off and live in a, a cloister or something like that. But it does mean you have to maintain this commitment to the path and to the disciplines of the path. And one way to do this is to inquire constantly about what's going on in your life, moment to moment. Ananda Morimai gives this advice. She says, It is important to discriminate minutely. If you examine yourself, you will see, what have I been doing the whole of today? For how long have I remained without the remembrance of God? How much have I thought of the Beloved, and how much of that which is harmful, which leads to death? Become aware of this. And you can really make this into a little practice. You know, you can take look, five or ten minutes at the end of the day, if you, especially if you meditate at the end of the day, incorporate it into your meditation, and just run over the day in your mind. What did you do all day? And doing this will start to build this kind of mindfulness. If you start to do this in the evening, during the course of the day, you'll find uh, spontaneously, uh, you'll start to remember, oh yes, I'm on a spiritual path here. That ultimately, every moment is a precious opportunity for spiritual practice. So in the very beginning here, you can start to integrate your spiritual practice with your everyday life. It's very important, just at the gross level, to reprioritize the activities in your life, uh, to make room for meditation, for reading, for things like that. This is why here, when people join the Wednesday group, as most of you are in, you know, I passed out this uh, daily schedule. And it's broken down into half-hour increments, and if you keep this for a week or so and just keep track of your activities, then there's a tally sheet at the end, and you can tally up the hours, the number of hours, and then you can calculate how much time you spend uh, in doing various activities. For some people, it's quite a shock, you know, you can make a pie chart out of it, and you see like a huge chunk of time as they're watching television or something, you know. But doing this can give you an idea of how you're spending your time, literally where your time's going. It's like making a budget for your money. Where's your money going, you know? And just becoming aware of this then uh, can help you reprioritize the activities in your life. This is also the stage then where the virtue of justice comes into play. I'm talking about justice in the classical sense. And the classical sense is much broader than the way we usually think of justice today. We usually think of justice today just in terms of uh, social justice or political justice. But in the classical sense, justice certainly included social justice because social justice brings about social harmony. But it also, and more importantly, begins with an inner harmony, an inner justice and is usually defined in the broadest sense as putting everything in its proper place. Again, it has to do with prioritizing your life according to what's most important in your life. This is what Plato wrote. In his psychology, the soul had three parts. The wisdom or reasoning part It's more than just logic, it includes wisdom. And then what he called the high-spirited part, which is really closer to what we would call will and then desires. And he says, Justice in the true sense concerns oneself. It means that a man must dispose well of what is properly his own. And having first attained to self-mastery and beautiful order within himself, and having harmonized these three principles, wisdom, will, and desire, and having linked and bound all three together and made of himself a unit, one man instead of many, self-controlled and in unison, he should then and then only turn to the things of the world. So what he's talking about is this unification of self here, right? Making yourself into one person. You're, you have one direction and you're not in, uh, engaged in this inner conflict. You're not embroiled in this inner turmoil. Now, for some seekers, this is very, very difficult because the, the ego resists this kind of discipline and this kind of harmonization. And in many traditions, they use uh, metaphors like spiritual warfare or spiritual combat to describe this stage of the path, what goes on in this stage of the path. So, I Rumi, for instance, the Sufi poet, writes, The prophets and saints do not avoid spiritual combat. The first spiritual combat they undertake in their quest is the killing of the ego and the abandonment of personal wishes and sensual desires. This is the greater holy war. In Islam, the jihad is the holy war, and exoterically it's a war against the enemies of Islam. But from a Sufi's point of view, the true jihad is the inner war you fight. And this is not to eradicate all desires so for instance you never feel hunger or something like that or cold but you subordinate them to this new purpose you have in life the purpose of pursuing your spiritual path and once that becomes really fixed as your priority the other things tend to fall into place and so if you You need to make a a living, you need to put a roof over your head, that's fine, but you don't take a job that consumes all your time, and perhaps you do with less materially in order to have time to pursue your path. This struggle is very common in any tradition, in any culture. Last time I mentioned Al-Ghazali's struggle with what he called Satan, which was the voice of the ego when uh, Al-Ghazali was this a great professor at the University of Baghdad who had lost his faith in God and then did this investigation of teachings and realized that only the Sufis could give him experiential knowledge of God. And then he went through this tremendous inner conflict of whether to leave his position in Baghdad and go off and join the Sufis or not. And this went on for quite a while. Uh, Augustine, whose book I mentioned earlier, The Confessions, writes about his inner struggles uh, one of them was, for instance, with um, sexual desire. He had, uh, as a youth, a lot of lovers, and then uh, when he got older, he had a mistress, and apparently he was quite a lusty guy, and he would pray to God, as he said, he would pray for continence, but not just yet. So, he <laughs> <laughs> go through this. Catherine of Genoa, another great Christian mystic, wrote uh, a dialogue between the soul... The body and self-love, as she called it. So these were her three uh, aspects of self, the way her psychology, the way she saw the soul. And this dialogue is this record of a uh, struggle between these various aspects of a person. And they each argue from their position what they need and so forth. And this goes on for 50 pages. Uh, even the Buddha, after he had seen the old man, the sick man, the corpse and then the monk when he returned to the palace went through a period of intense inner struggle trying to decide whether he should abandon this wonderful life in his father's palace and go off and become a monk or not. So this is not uh, uncommon and some of the greatest uh, mystics have had the greatest struggle. So if you find yourself engaged in this sort of struggle, embroiled in this sort of struggle. Don't think there's anything wrong. It's quite uh, right, in fact. And I would even go so far as to say, if you don't have some of this, it probably means that you're kidding yourself about the depth of your path. Because if it's not raising this resistance from the ego, if it's not threatening the ego, it's not being very effective. So a sign of resistance and a sign of internal conflict is a good sign, really, although it doesn't necessarily feel very good. In fact, you may feel like you're caught between two worlds for a while. One of the things that this struggle does is forces you to look inward. So, the inquiry that you began, which was usually uh, an outward inquiry when you were investigating teachings, and now if you're on a path you're reading the teachings uh, of your path. If you're a Buddhist, you're reading Buddhist sutras and so forth. That uh, sense of inquiry now becomes quite personal. It turns inward. Because you have to ask yourself, what am I doing? What do I really want? Doubts uh, get raised here, and there are, two kinds of doubts. There's the doubts the ego raises, which are clever intellectual sorts of doubts trying to entice you off the path, but there are legitimate internal doubts about what you're doing and, and you have to confront them. This stage requires real, ruthless self-honesty because as Eddie Hillison writes, we try to save so much in life with a vague sort of mysticism. True mysticism must rest on crystal-clear honesty and can only come after things have been stripped down to their naked reality. This is true for a lot of people that I've met. They're into a mystical kind of path, and it's this vague mystical path that actually papers things over. So they go around and uh, everything's nice, and they have their spirit guides and so forth and so on, and... uh, a lot of it is a kind of a fantasy that masks reality and masks this really coming to grips with yourself. And it's very important in this process of being honest to really ask the question, do I want to be on a spiritual path? You may not be ready to go on a spiritual path, and that's fine. When I was young, in my teenage years, I got very interested in Zen Buddhism, and I did some actual some meditation practice, and I went to seminars with Alan Watts and so forth. And, you know, eventually I got enticed away by worldly adventures and whatnot. And that was fine, especially for long, young people. A lot of young people really need to have that experience in the world before they really understand the importance of the spiritual path. So it's very important to face that and ask or question your own motives for being on a spiritual path. A mystical path has to be voluntary. That doesn't mean it won't have this internal conflict, but ultimately, at heart, it has to be freely chosen. It's just a mechanical thing. It will not work unless it's voluntary. Put poetically, what the divine demands is the voluntary sacrifice, not an involuntary sacrifice. So it has to be. So a very good way to test this if you find your practices are really becoming stale and really becoming a burden and you've just lost all interest and there's just tremendous resistance, is to quit. Stop. Stop meditating. Stop going to meetings. See what happens. Because if your time is right, if you are right for a spiritual path, you won't be able to stay away. That's the truth. You might do that for a while, but something's going to draw you back. This is... Represented mythically in the story of Parsifal by this old hag, Kundri. I think I mentioned her last time, or the story of Parsifal last time. That Parsifal stumbles on the grail kingdom in this forest, but it's a wasteland. This is a symbol for life under delusion, for samsara. But Parsifal is too polite to ask what's wrong here. So the uh, Grail Kingdom vanishes, and he's back to ordinary reality. And he goes off to be a knight at King Arthur's court. He has worldly ambitions. And he goes to King Arthur's court, and he starts jousting, and he does pretty good. He starts getting invited to the A-list parties, you know, and hobnobbing with the stars there. And he's having, uh, you know, a good time, and he's getting a lot of respect and status. And then this old hag starts pursuing him. She rides into uh, these tournaments. She's described as having these boars, tusks that come out of her mouth and, and hair like Spanish moss and so forth. And she starts scolding him. She says, you missed your opportunity. You should have asked what's wrong there when you were in the grail kingdom. You have to go back and find the grail. And he at first tries to get away from her. But she pursues him. You know, at these banquets, it's kind of embarrassing to have this old hag coming after you in the middle of these banquets. You know, she really is. She's Athena, or the archetype of wisdom. It's very interesting how these archetypes work. If you cooperate, then the wisdom goddess appears to you like Athena. You know, she's beautiful. She's decked out in her shining armor. She has these wonderful gray eyes and this owl that she rides on her shoulder and so forth. If you resist, then she appears to you as a hag. And comes after you. So it's really your attitude. It's the same archetype appearing, but it's your attitude that determines how they appear to you. Anyway, if you uh, try this dropping the path and come back to it, you'll still be caught in this turmoil for a while and you still have to make this inner inquiry, this self-inquiry. And for... Each person, what you're going to find is going to be considerably different because a lot of how our psyches are structured uh, depends on how we were raised. If you read my book, Naked Through the Gate, you will see, or if you've read it, you'll remember. What I discovered that there are really four, what I call, personas or aspects to my psyche. And I gave them mythological names. Odysseus was that part of me that wanted per- to pursue worldly success and didn't mind being a little cynical and a little hard bitten about the way I went about it. And then there was Pan, who was that aspect of myself who wanted just to wallow in hedonistic pleasures, you know. And then there was Orpheus, who was really longing for a romantic love, you know, for finding your soulmate and whatnot. And then there was this other part of myself, which I named Parsifal. Uh, which was really that part that wanted to search for spiritual truth, but which had been repressed and left behind. This had been the aspect of myself, as I mentioned, when I was a teenager, that had sort of come to the fore in studying Zen and pursuing these things, but then got sort of lost, got sort of swept under the carpet, was gone to sleep. So now as I began to watch my life, it was very interesting. First of all, I, I could trace these aspects of myself back to my childhood. Uh, and I could see how they evolved. I called them my guardians because, in a certain sense, they developed to protect you. But when I uh, watched them and I could see them operating in a business meeting, I could see Odysseus coming to the fore. I could hear my mind. And I you was know, getting uh, clever. Wily Odysseus is what he's called in the Odyssey. you know. And I could see that my mind was turning wily. Or with Samantha, I could see Orpheus here, this, this uh, starry-eyed romantic... So I could see these various parts of myself actually in operation. They were almost not like a split personality or multiple personalities, but there was a shift. And if you watch yourself, you might find this is true for yourself as well. I found it very helpful to give them names. Once I could name them, and they were easy to spot. And then I noticed something else about this, though. Their goals were all contradictory. You cannot be uh, a complete... Hedonist and also be ambitious in a worldly sense. To be ambitious in a worldly sense, I mean, to really get someplace, to be an executive or an artist or something like that, you need a lot of self-discipline. You can't while away your life, uh, you know, smoking dope and and partying. And then if you're going to be a hedonist, you can't uh, have a really deep romantic relationship with anybody because, you know, you want lots of lovers and so forth. And certainly, you can't pursue these other things and also pursue spiritual truth. So, in fact, I realized I was already in conflict and had been in conflict all my life because my goals were incompatible. And then I thought I could resolve this again intellectually, you know, through some sort of Jungian psychology, and I couldn't. And I think what most people find is this inner conflict cannot be resolved intellectually. It just leads to uh, exhaustion and wretchedness. Here's how George Fox, who was the founder of the Quakers, describes his early experiences on the path. But my troubles continued, and I was often under great temptations. And I fasted much and walked abroad in solitary places many days, and often took my Bible and went and sat in hollow trees and lonesome places till night came on, and frequently in the night walked mournfully about by myself, for I was a man of sorrows in the times of the first workings of the Lord in me. This is rather typical experience of this uh, inner turmoil going on. Well, if you can't solve this at the egoic level, if the old self can't solve this, can't put Humpty Dumpty back together again here, uh, fortunately, you've already been exposed to guidance on a spiritual path and guidance comes to your rescue. And it's usually inner guidance. And it may not be in the form of a clear-cut uh, inner teacher that you recognize, but this, uh, this inner conflict gets resolved really at a, what we would call a subconscious level. The psyche gets reorganized over time. You can't really do it yourself. But what you can do is you can cooperate with this process. And the way you cooperate is by paying attention. Paying attention, paying attention. First, you can pay attention to your dreams. At this period, you're likely to have very rich and very meaningful dreams. Mm -hmm. And if you pay attention to them, which means starting by recording them, writing them down or recording them on a tape recorder. That's the, the first uh, gross level paying attention. And then pondering them, Take, taking the time to read them over and trying to get a sense of what they mean. And then if there is anything that you uh, can act on in the dream, acting on it. Even if it seems silly, as I've said before, you know, if you dream about standing on the corner of Willamette and 13th Street uh, in the afternoon and you don't know what that means, get in your car or your bicycle, go over there, stand on the corner. It, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't matter whether something significant happens or not. The very fact that you are taking the time and making the effort to change your life in response to a dream encourages deeper, more significant dreams. And I used to think of it this way. I think it's a good way to think of It's that your inner teacher is dreaming the dreams for you, trying to reach you, trying to communicate. And when you start to respond, oh, your inner teacher gets very excited Look at that. Mikhail's listening. He's actually going to do something. I'll give him a really good dream tonight. It doesn't necessarily always come one, two, three like that. But over a period of time, you will find that by really delving into your dreams, they become much clearer usually and much more meaningful. It's very important to take the attitude that you are there to serve the dream. The dreams aren't to serve you. In the In the old self sense of the term you or the ego sense and a lot of people in doing a secular psychological dream work make this mistake they think oh the dream there is to help out my ego so the dream is going to help me have better relationships in life it's going to help me get a better job and things like that the, the inner teacher does not care at all about that ultimately the inner teacher is you and has your own uh, best interests at heart but it's not at the ego level So if you approach the dream as, what does the dream want me to do? What does the dream want me to see? Rather than, what can the dream do for me? Then your dreams will really start to turn archetypal and they can become a tremendously important part of a spiritual path. The other thing is to pay attention to visions. Now that sounds like a strange thing to say. First of all, uh, you can't command visions. But I'm including in visions here autonomous imagery that arises in your mind, especially if you've been able to make unstructured time, really time to be alone, like George Fox wandering around in the, in the hills with his Bible and so forth. And uh, at one level the ego produces all these escapist sorts of fantasies, but it can also produce imagery that is really very much like a waking dream, that can be very important if you pay attention and take it seriously. And again, if you Read my book, you'll see that I uh, explored these four personas often through this kind of imagery, which I called white heats. And just by paying attention to them and allowing them to guide me so that I could then look at them in my life as it was unfolding was a very, very important part of the stage or the path for me. If you aren't having any significant dreams or, or uh, this sort of autonomous Imagery, this is a very good time to make a vision quest where you specifically set time, a nice big chunk of time aside, to ask for guidance from your inner teacher. Here's how the Lakota shaman George Sword describes how Lakotas undertake a vision quest and for what reason. He says, If a boy or a young man wishes to know what he should do all his life, he should seek a vision. The usual way to seek a vision is to purify the body in an initi, in an which is a sweat, and then go naked, only wrapped in a robe, to the top of a hill, and stay there without speaking to anyone of mankind, or eating or drinking, and thinking continually about the vision he wishes. This is the really the same thing George uh, Fox did, but in a more formal way. You see? Do a little... A purification ceremony, ritual, dedicate to this time to this, and then go off someplace. You don't have to even go to a hill, go out and, uh, to the coast, rent a motel room. And the most important thing is this concentrating on the guidance you want, the help you want. You can get very powerful guidance through vision quests or visionary sorts of experiences. One of the turning points in my life came when I recalled what I call this big man dream that I had had when I was 23 years old on the eve of going to Vietnam. And it had been a very powerful dream. I mean, very vivid. I'd remembered the dream. And at the time, I'd just taken the dream to mean that I was going to come back from Vietnam okay. And then I, I kind of forgot it. And at this then stage of my life, at this stage of my spiritual path, I remembered this dream and I began to write it down and as I wrote it down I realized this dream had prophesied everything that had happened to me in those intervening, what, 15 20 years it was astonishing to me I just could not believe it and it became a turning point just because of that, it was one of those things where you say, well, wait a minute, something much bigger is going on here than my little ego mind can conceive of. And I wrote about this, and I think I'd like to read you this little paragraph. This is when I just realized what this dream had done, that it had prophesied my life. As the import of this revelation deepened, I closed my eyes and knew myself to be standing at the most decisive crossroads of my life, I could simply choose to forget I ever had this dream, forget Athena and her sword, forget Samantha Jones, forget my quest, and never ask a single question about who I was or what was truth or reality or destiny. Or, by inquiring into the dream further and accepting all the consequences of its implications, have the whole current of my existence wrenched from its old habitual stream bed and sent spilling out into a vast inconceivable unknown. And I was quite aware then... Of this spooky sort of feeling, saying, oh, maybe this is something you just better forget about and go on with your life, because if you delve into it, everything's going to change. And indeed, I did decide to delve into it, and indeed, everything did change. And this kind of turning point usually occurs in this stage of the path. It's part of this unification of self. Especially if you've not had a very strong glimpse of the divine in the stage of awakening of faith. If you haven't had a really powerful sense of this transcendent dimension of this life or a divine presence, it'll usually come in this stage. It constitutes really your true initiation into the path. It's something that happens to you that you now cannot really doubt. I mean, doubts will still continue to occur, but it, it, this is something so uh, overpowering and overwhelming that it really makes a fundamental shift in your psyche. But the poor seeker is still not out of the woods yet in terms of the stage even. The more you commit to a spiritual path, the more you get uh, interested in what's going on internally, uh, the more you do have powerful dreams and uh, visions, perhaps, and things like this, insights and whatever, the less interested you become in worldly pursuits, worldly pleasures and so forth. You just start to lose interest. And this loss of interest can become quite severe. And the stage of the path, the unification of self, culminates in what St. John the Cross called a dark night of the senses. And here's how he described it. He says, we are using the expression night to signify a deprival of the gratification of the soul's appetites in all things. When the appetites are extinguished one no longer feeds on the pleasure of these things but lives in a void and a darkness with respect to the appetites. So it's partly that you, you haven't really begun to enjoy the, the joys of a spiritual path but your old joys and pleasures are drawing up and no longer becoming attractive. So it doesn't sound very pleasant But St. John of the Cross insists this dark night is really beneficial. And the chief benefit that this dry and dark night causes is the knowledge of self and one's own misery. Now that the soul is clothed in these garments of labor, dryness, and desolation, and that its former lights have been darkened, it possesses more authentic lights in this most excellent and necessary virtue of self-knowledge it considers itself to be nothing and finds no satisfaction in self. So how is this a benefit? I mean, this doesn't sound very beneficial. But truly speaking, once the worldly pleasures dry up for the old self, the old self has been deprived of one of its major weapons, which is the power of seduction. These old seductions simply don't work. And you may find yourself actually trying them. You may find yourself really in a a place that feels like a a deep depression, and you may decide, you know, I just got to get out of the house, I got to go to a party, and you go to a party, and it's your old friends, everything's going along just as usual, but it just isn't doing it for you anymore. There's no juice in it, you know, you can't get excited about it. Or maybe you go to a movie, and you sit there in the movie theater, you know, and you just can't get into the movie really you're being protected from what are temptations and seductions that the old self has been using to try to get you not to continue going on this path. The other thing is, in this stage, you still have to grapple with doubts, but the doubts, the egoic doubts, are deprived of any value because even if you doubt where this path is going or if the path will ultimately be illuminating or, or take you to any sort of happiness, you've got no place to go back to. It just doesn't work anymore. This is what I wrote again about this end of the stage of the path. In the end, however, it was not the force of logic that convinced me to continue with this path. As this journal entry indicates, I became a mystic by default. And then I quoted from a little entry I'd made at the time, which doesn't seem so much, but it turned out to be very important. Tonight I wrestle with cynicism. Perhaps the rationalists are right. There is no God, no meaning, not even consciousness. Just this billiard game of bouncing atoms in the dark. Nothing to do but go for the pleasures of the moment. Get rich, get drunk, get laid. The trouble is all such pleasures have turned sour on me. I am driven to God not by reason, not for pleasure, not for virtue, not even for love. I simply have no other choice. During the next several months, I would continue to have such moments of doubt, discouragement, and even fear. My guardians were gone forever, and Athena, too, seemed to have temporarily faded again. But the worst had passed with Christmas Eve, when all true resistance to my destiny had crumbled. I was alone now, but also stronger no longer torn between conflicting desires and contradictory ambitions. Deep in my bowels I felt everything being honed and refined for a single purpose, the journey home." See when I wrote this book I had no idea about stages and unification of self or anything like that but this is really what was happening. The resistance uh, dried up, the uh, scattered uh, desires uh, fell away, And I ended up with just one purpose, one direction to go in. And this is what the unification of self is. So really, the identity crisis is resolved by this dark night of the senses. And this is the third grace that we encounter on a spiritual path. As I mentioned, the first uh, two graces, the first one was the glimpse that you get of the uh, of the divine in the period of awakening of faith, it awakens your faith, and then the grace of finding a teacher, and now the grace of going through this dark night of the senses where you come out at the other end with a much more single-minded purpose, aim in light. And... Really, you could say you come out with a new identity. It's an interim identity. It will eventually have to be surrendered, but it's an identity that's going to carry you through at least the next several stages of the path. And that is the identity as a spiritual seeker. If you ask yourself the question, who am I? Well, I'm a spiritual seeker. And the interesting thing about a a spiritual seeker is a spiritual seeker is not someone who has answers. A spiritual seeker is someone who has questions. A spiritual seeker is not someone who knows, someone who's trying to find out. So this new identity isn't a further step in worldly maturity. In a a way, it's like going backwards, but you're not losing your worldly maturity, your worldly wisdom, but it's uh, uh, coming back and becoming, in a certain sense, innocent again. Spiritually innocent, not worldly innocent, not naively innocent. Opening yourself up for whatever may come. At this point, Point, most seekers aren't really in danger of falling off the path again. For most seekers, if you've passed through this dark night of the senses, spirituality is going to be the priority in your life for the rest of your life. Because, really, you've experienced for yourself what Simone Weil wrote about. She says, We all know that there is no true good here below, that everything that appears to be good in this world is finite, limited, wears out. Men feel that there is mortal danger in facing this truth for any length of time. That is true. Such knowledge strikes more surely than a sword. It inflicts a death more frightening than that of the body. After a time, it kills everything within us that constitutes our ego. In order to bear it, we have to love truth more than life itself. Those who do this turn away from the fleeting things of time with all their souls. Now, that sounds pretty grim, and I just want to say now that in later stages of the spiritual path, remember I said one of the reasons to know about stages is because teachings and experience are stage-specific, later, in later stages of the spiritual path, the uh, things of this world all become completely transformed. They no longer look like worldly things, they become sacred things. And you start to see the divine manifesting in all these forms around you. And you start to experience bliss and beauty that you've never imagined before. In fact, so much so that um, Nasrut, who we were listening to this morning, this Qawwali singer, this uh, Sufi Qawwali singer, has a song where the singer begs God to protect him from his beauty. Because that's the last distraction to be, not to be seduced by worldly beauty, but by spiritual beauty. It's too overwhelming. So passing through this doesn't mean that the rest of your life then you're, you're sort of, I don't know, in some void, some sort of heaven away from this world. But it is turning away from how you've experienced the world in the past, this limited experience of the world, the secular experience of the world, this materialist experience of the world. There's a a metaphor for this. You find in various forms and various traditions of setting out to sea and crossing the ocean of samsara. And uh, really, you could say that up until this stage in the spiritual path, you've been getting ready to go on a voyage of exploration. You've still been on shore. You've been getting your provisions ready. You've been uh, purchasing your boat. You know, that's like finding your path. You've been stocking up on teachings and, uh, and you've been practicing sailing around the harbor maybe a little bit you know running the sails up and down and now you're really ready to cast off though, you're really ready to sail out of that harbor, to leave land behind and sail off into the great unknown and so this is really a, quite a major transition point on a spiritual path uh, here's how Lali Shori describes this transition to the next stage, she says with courage I began to enter the inner kingdom Slowly, slowly, the journey of Lali's life began to go well. So once again, when we look back at this stage of the unification of self, we actually see the same three things at work here. There's an exhaustion of the ego's effort to commit to the path, because the ego can't really commit to the path. It has to be a commitment of the heart, not just a commitment of the mind. A crisis of identity, who am I really in this life, which also is uh, resolved not through the ego's effort, but gets resolved at a subconscious level, and gets resolved through experience, through going through this dark night of the senses. And this dark night of the senses is a manifestation of this guidance, a final grace, a grace that then ships you off to the next stage. And what this grace is, and we're going to start to notice this at this stage, and looking back we'll see it, and it's going to be true in all the rest of the stages as well. What this grace really is, is a deprivation of choice. When you uh, experience exhaustion uh, and crisis, your will gets stymied. You can't solve it. And in this stymieing of the will, in this depriving you of choice, it's no longer up to you, that's what opens you to the guidance of the Divine. So really, the path itself, although you don't usually realize this point, is already chipping away at that ego self. This is what it is doing. It's everywhere you turn, it's blocking what the ego can do. and you You turn and turn and turn, until finally there's no place to turn, and boom, something opens up for you. So you're beginning to see this fundamental pattern that uh, runs through all the stages and is really the fundamental pattern of the whole path. So, that's the talk on unification of the self. Any questions or comments? Yes? talked about the four aspects of yourself, um wanting material success, wanting love, wanting spirituality. Can't that just be divided into two? Just the outward, yang, left side wanting to get love, wanting to get stuff, wanting to get, and the inside wanting spirituality and recoil. Yes, and well for different people it, it might manifest quite differently. but. Uh, I saw them as four I experienced them as four so it's not an intellectual decision that I made to divide into four instead of two or three and in my case I experienced each one as being in conflict with the others so for instance just drop the spiritual side of it if you want in life both you want you're very ambitious for worldly success and you want to spend your time partying, smoking dope and you want a deep romantic relationship with one other person, those are three contradictory things. You can't have them all in life. They're all outside yourself. You're all looking for that pleasure out there. Right, but even so, you're not even on a spiritual path. You're already in conflict. You see what I mean? Even as a worldly person, you're never going to find happiness uh, not only because all the things of the world are ephemeral, as Simone Weil says, and there's no true happiness to be found in them, but you're never going to find happiness because you yourself are in conflict about what you really want. I had never realized this about myself until I started doing this inquiry as part of a spiritual path. And it was very valuable for me to see this as actual patterns of behavior because that's when I can drop them. So it's not really a question of could you think of it this way or could you think of it that way? Whichever way works for you, you think of it. But the important thing is how it's actually manifesting in your experience. That's what makes a uh, transformation possible, a real transformation in your life, to see it actually happening. I had a phenomenon occur to me a few weeks ago, that was something that's never happened to me before. You know, my mom died a a few weeks ago, and a couple of days after her death, I had this experience that I was she, you know, that there was... uh, I didn't know how long that was going to last, but it lasted a couple of days, where whatever... It was that very strong experience that... I I wasn't only... I was a, a combination of the two. And I attributed that sort of to different kinds of possibilities, but in, in the thing that uh, struck me is about it is that this idea of the self and who we are is really very amorphous sometimes. It just goes. Exactly right. Yeah. That was, this was my experience, and part of recognizing these four personas, which I didn't really get into until the next stage, was to see, well so who am I really it, it drove me back to the deeper question you know and when you can really see that uh, however it, it, is, it manifests in your own particular case but whenever you can find a self you see it as a pattern or as a feeling or whatever and then, then there's a time when it's not there it is amorphous then what is in that amorphous you know that's where you want to look When you talk about the ego, and you uh, somehow desires get involved in there too. And the other thing when you talk about um, resistance, and you're saying the ego comes as the resistor. I'm wondering, I'd like to, if you can talk about the ego and the desire, but also the the resistance, would that be... uh, our habitual way of doing thing that is, became so entrenched. I mean, is that also, and it seems to me you talked about it as an ego. Right. First of all, we should remember there is no such thing actually as an ego. So we're not talking about a real entity here. So the best definition really of an ego is your sense of who you are. A uh, vague sense. It can be a vague sense, let me put it that way. So it depends on what you are identified with. Now, most people, for instance, identify with their desires. So, you know, if I say, oh, I love uh, hot fudge Sundays, uh, that's somehow part of me. Do you know what I mean? I'm a person who loves hot fudge Sundays. You see what I'm talking about? Um, You may at some point in your life experience a disidentification with the desire and then it will feel like something other than you. So maybe you uh, get uh, diabetes and you can't have hot fudge sundays. but you still have this physical, habitual, conditioned desire, but now you're trying to resist that, you see. Uh, I mean, you're trying not to eat the hot fudge sundays because you know it's going to be bad for you health-wise. So now you start to feel that desire as something more alien to you. You start to feel it come on and and you get involved in a battle with it. You see what I mean? So who you are, your sense of yourself, shifts over time anyway. It, It shifts over time as you grow up, just quite naturally. On a spiritual path, particularly at this stage of a spiritual path, there's a lot of shifting going on. So old patterns and thoughts that you once identified with that were, you would call, ego, then start to seem alien and detrimental. A good example, a very clear-cut example, is the story of Al-Ghazali, where he wakes up every morning, he decides, today I'm going to give notice, I'm going to leave Baghdad, I'm going out to join the Sufis. And then his thoughts, his voices in his mind, start saying, well, now, you don't really want to do that, do you? I mean, you worked hard to get here, you know, and if you leave, you can't just breeze back into town and claim your post back, you know, and you have a wonderful life here, you know, you have a house with uh, gardens and fountains and a wonderful family and all this, and you're going to go off in the desert and hang around with those smelly camels at oases and things? You know better than I do what, what the conditions might be. Mm-hmm. Then he would be torn. Now, this is the, his old way of thinking. This is something new that suddenly came up, and at one time, all that would have made perfect sense to him, you see? as a young man, when he was ambitious to become a professor at the at the university there in Baghdad, those thoughts he identified with. Those were his ego. Mm-hmm. Now, because this other thing is growing in him, this spiritual identity, if we like, this uh, seems like something alien. So he calls it Satan, the voice of Satan, you know. But it's still in his own head, so it sets up this conflict. So there isn't a clear cut answer, I guess, to your question. It is something that starts to shift, but that is the whole point of this particular, in this stage of the path. This sense of identity starts to shift. So you begin with one sense of yourself, I am an intelligent person, I've got a lot of experience, I've got a lot of learning, I, I know how to tackle this spiritual path, I know how to do these practices, and uh, you end up with a sense, I don't know how to do any of this, and now I'm a spiritual seeker. I'm like a child again. I'm here to learn and I'm being sucked off into this great journey and there's no turning back. Is that helpful? Well, I can feel it. The sun (laughs) is calling us away from spiritual practice. (laughs) So why don't we bring the formal part of the morning to a close? You are welcome to stay and have tea and check out the library before you rush off to worship the sun. (laughs) 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 Until, Until we see you again, peace to you all.